Okay, evidently I didn't run you off, if you're listening to this, with the introduction that we did last week. So, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're uh, uh, here. Uh, I'm going to try to post one of these once a week. Um, I know a lot of people have... um, talked to me over the past week you know asking me to basically hurry up and get these posted a lot of people a lot of people interested in revelation i I knew it when i when i began and so uh what we're going to do is i'm going to try to post one every week and uh, i'm encouraging you um to uh, go to the website jasonvelada.com you can download them if you're not a subscriber to the iTunes podcast where it'll send it to your mobile device or whatever um, you, you need to download them if you something you don't understand listen to it over and over again try to write down uh, what you can you're definitely going to need a pen you're definitely going to need a notebook you're definitely going to need uh, a comfortable seat in the saddle uh, as we work through these we're only going to do eight verses today uh, you're probably thinking well eight verses that's not going to be very long uh, but oh yes it is it's going to be very long i'm going to try to make this as uh, as interesting as possible uh, and i'm going to try to make it as clear as possible but there are some things that you're going to have to concentrate you're going to have to you're going to have to apply you know, some brain power um, this is not going to be one of those things where i just say hey this means that and we move on and we just have some loosey-goosey interpretation of god's word i'm going to try to um, i'm going to try to bring john's symbols his references uh, to your mind the way that they would pop out to the mind of a, a first century person who was uh, rooted and grounded and and heard the greek old testament preached from every every lord's day um, and that's the churches in asia minor would have used the greek old testament rather than the hebrew old testament and so the new testament authors uh, you may not know this and uh, i'm going to go ahead and tell you now the new testament authors um quote more in the whole new testament not just in revelation but in the whole new testament they quote more from the Greek Old Testament, almost exclusively from the Greek Old Testament rather than the Hebrew. Have you ever uh, found a quote in your Bible from the Old Testament, maybe in Hebrews or maybe, you know, in Romans or something, and you turn back to the Old Testament to find the passage and you looked at it and it's not quoted exactly the same way. It's almost like they just uh, kind of, you know, just quoted it off the cuff or whatever. Uh, most of the time, the reason for that is because your English Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew, and and that's fine. That's good. That's the original language of the Old Testament. But almost exclusively, the New Testament authors didn't quote the Old Testament from the Hebrew. They quoted it from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see right off the bat, we're going to see some phrases that John uses from the Greek Old Testament. Um in the very first very first verse and these would uh, they're they're kind of hard for us being 20 you know 21st century uh, english speakers but for the person who heard and read the greek old testament uh, you know over and over and again and heard it preached from uh, on every lord's day these phrases would have would have would have jumped out and we talked about that a little last week so let me just um have that push that in your mind remember you're going to need that just before we start 
Um, we are going to be looking at John's use of the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament, because he's quoting uh, all the New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint, which is the name of the Greek Old Testament, rather than the Hebrew text. And so uh, almost exclusively, I'm going to say there, there's a few exceptions, but almost exclusively. So remember that I'm going to try not to bombard you with Greek syntax and complex linguistics and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to try to simplify it as best uh, best as as I can but understand that we are working with some with some uh, with some complex things here we're going to have to be flipping back and forth in our Bible so uh, follow me and uh, and stop it restart it listen to it again um, and let's just uh, let's just go with verse one and see what we can uh, get accomplished uh, the revelation verse one the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bond servants the things which must soon take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant john so like i said in the introduction last week the book is not just a news report so that you will know what's going to happen at the end of the world and we can watch the news and we can all see it coming it's a it's a revealing of jesus christ and it's a revealing by jesus christ god the father gave the son this revelation to show his servants what must soon take place now right off the bat we're going to be faced with an interpretive question uh, i mean i hope you didn't think we were going to kind of ease into revelation before we have to to put on our thinking caps um, but uh, you know you might want to get your get your Bible out and download the outline it's all on jasonbalada.com uh, that way you won't have to try to write down you know Greek phrases or anything like that um, like I said I'm not going to bombard you with that stuff you know but I, I had a teacher one time who told me that if I can't explain uh, complex things in a simple way that people can understand then I don't really understand them myself and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain it simply and I'm going to try to bring you along with me but that's not letting you off the hook you're going to have to apply yourself to understanding while at the same time listening with discernment and checking out the things that I say because I have known been known to make many many mistakes uh, and so so make sure that you write down check out uh, don't uh, don't just take my word for it so let's get back to the phrase, the things which must soon take place. That's what we see right in the beginning. Uh, Jesus has given this revelation by the Father, uh, shown through an angel to John, and the, the context, the content, excuse me, of the revelation is the things which must soon take place. Now, if you were to translate the Greek sentence, that Greek sentence literally, it would say, that which is necessary to happen soon, that which must happen. A lot of times when you and I read those words, and I've done it a million times, uh, what we see, what we see when we read through that is the things which are going to happen. You know, he's going to tell us what's going to happen, you know, and and that's a good translation to say the things which must soon take place. But what we read is we, we need to emphasize the word must. The Greek the Greek phrase is ha de genesthai. That's written in the outline, so you won't have to write it down or whatever. But it's ha de genesthai. Uh, we're going to leave out the word soon just just for a minute. That comes last in the Greek sentence. But ha de genesthai is the things which are necessary to take place. What what must 
happen. Now, that seems like a little thing. It seems like, well, that doesn't really sound like that's a very big deal. But it's important because for the person that's saturated in the culture of the Old Testament prophets, uh, this phrase would start setting off alarm bells. As soon as you start, as soon as you read the first verse, this phrase, ha de genestai, what must happen, what is necessary to come to pass. This phrase appears three times in the New Testament, only three times. And all three times times are in Revelation. We have it here, verse 1. We have it in chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to see it again there. And we have it at the very end in chapter 22, verse 6. And this exact phrase appears nowhere in the Greek Old Testament except for one place. And that is Daniel chapter 2 when he is giving the interpretation of what must take place in the last days. Now, Before we go to Daniel and look at this phrase, um, you need to remember that uh, John, Paul, uh, Peter, almost exclusively, they're quoting from the Greek Old Testament rather than the Hebrew. And so when we go back to the Old Testament, we're going to be looking at the Septuagint Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the Greek text of the Old Testament, not the uh, not the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And so, um, you know, I, I told you about how they I told you about how they quote from the, the Septuagint, uh, the churches that the, are in Asia Mount the seven churches, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Sardis, all those, they would have read and studied this Greek Old Testament. That was their scripture. They would have heard from it every day. And so when someone came to preach the prophecy of Daniel, remember this phrase only appears, it appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. Ha de genestai, or actually de genestai. It is what's necessary to to uh, to come to pass, what's necessary to happen. Uh, so flip over, flip your Bible over to Daniel chapter 2, and let's look at what Daniel was talking about when he spoke about the things that are necessary to take place, the things that must happen. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is called to interpret a dream that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has. Uh, uh, You've probably read it a bunch of times before. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a big statue made out of all these different kind of metals. You know, the head was gold and the the chest and arms were silver and the the thighs were bronze and the, you know, the leg, the the feet were iron and then the toes were mixed with clay and iron. And, and, you know, there's this picture of this thing and, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand it and he's calling for these people to interpret his dream and nobody can interpret it but well they say there's a man here and he is a a man that uh, speaks for God he's talking about Daniel and he brings Daniel in to interpret this dream and so let me read for you uh, chapter 2 Daniel chapter 2 verse 26 uh, and I'll read probably through 29 or so uh, the king this is 26 10, Daniel two twenty six. the king declared to Daniel whose name was Belshazzar Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What will be right there in uh, verse 28 is our first phrase, ha de genestai. That's the place where it's used. So you could say he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what must take place. And look when it takes place in the latter 
days. That's what it says. Now, that is the word that I taught you last week, eschatos. Remember that word? It's where it means last. And so we say eschatology is the study of last things. So what he says here to King Nebuchadnezzar is what must take place in the last days. Last days is is eschaton hameron. And so what he's saying is, I am going to show you what must take place in the last days. And then continue reading in verse 28. Let me start over in 28. It says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter latter days, the last days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Verse 29 says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be. That's our that's our phrase again what must happen the things that are necessary to happen after this and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be and so what after that daniel goes to interpreting his dream and we're going to talk about that a little later uh the interpretation of the four metals is four different kingdoms you know and daniel tells us this the the head of gold is nebuchadnezzar and the babylonians and then you know i'll give you a sneak peek the 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 silver is the medo persian empire that comes and conquers the Babylonians. The bronze is the Greeks that come and conquer the Medo-Persians. And then finally, the Iron Kingdom is Rome. And so you see that that Daniel prophesies uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar the exact order of the succession of these kingdoms. And that's been known for a long time, so that's not controversial. But then Daniel says, and in the days of those kings, talking about the king in the the kingdom of iron, Daniel says in uh, verse 44, he says, the days of those kings, uh, the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. It's talking about the Messiah's kingdom. Verse 45 in Daniel chapter 2 says, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces the iron the bronze the clay the silver and the gold those are all the metals a great god has made known to the king what shall be there's our phrase again ha degenestai or just degenestai after this the dream is certain and its interpretation sure so right off the bat already in the first verse of revelation we have a clue as to what john is going to be showing us. Uh, he is writing about the fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied so long ago. Uh, the link between Daniel and Revelation is pretty much accepted by everyone. You know, in, in whatever camp they find themselves, you know, the different interpretations I told you last time. Um, but so this is not controversial. This is nothing, you know, secret that I'm telling you, you know, this this has been known for centuries that there's a connection between Revelation and Daniel. So this is this is not just, you know, some some wild thing that uh, we just found out a couple of weeks ago. You know, this is this is old news. But the phrase here's where it gets interesting for me, because this phrase, what must take place is only used in this one chapter of Daniel in the Greek Old Testament. That's it. And then it's only used in the New Testament three times in Revelation, three times in Revelation, three times in Daniel. And so what we see here, what we see here is that um, that 
John is going to unfold the things that Daniel say is necessary to happen. But Daniel says, now look at this, stay with me. Daniel says that the things which must happen, they're going to happen in the last days. Remember the eschaton, eschaton hameron, the last days, the latter days? Uh, those are when the things are going to happen. He's revealed to you, Nebuchadnezzar, what must happen in the last days. But Daniel um but John, excuse me, replaces that phrase in the last days with a single word. And that word is take. It's, it's soon, shortly, quickly, uh, speedily. It, uh, it, it, it means shortly. It means soon. You know, some translations will have it quickly. What must quickly come to pass? What must soon take place? What must, what must speedily happen? Um, what does the word mean? You know, that's, that's, what we need to, that's what we need to think about. For just a second now, imagine that you were in one of those seven churches in first century who were the first people to receive John's letter. Uh, when you read the first line, what would you think? I mean, would you think that John's trying to tell you what would you think he's trying to tell you uh the word soon does it mean soon the word shortly does it mean shortly well of course you know the the word means exactly what it means daniel when he wrote his prophecy was told by God to seal up his visions until the time of the end. He was told that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, make sure that you're writing those down because, you know, I've been known to misquote. Uh, he's, he's told to seal up his prophecy to the time of the end in Daniel ver- chapter 12, verse 4. But John, at the end of the book of Revelation, is told not to seal up his prophecy because the time is at hand, Revelation twenty two ten. So there are three possibilities here, and I'm going to give you all three, and I'm still going to pretend like I'm riding the fence for a little bit, a little while longer. I'm not going to give away which one I hold, although if you know me, you know, you can probably guess which one it is. Uh, First one is that many people say that soon or shortly doesn't mean soon or shortly. John doesn't intend for his first century readers to expect that uh, that uh, that any of this stuff's going to happen to them. You know, soon just means that when it starts, uh, whatever century that might be, it, it's going to happen really quickly. You know, and there's a lot of people who hold this view uh, rather than comment you know, on it. Let me just read the verse again, and you decide if you think that's what John wanted his readers to understand. You know what, that that's what he meant. Uh, if it happened fast, whenever it starts, the verse says, "The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show His bond servants the things which must soon take place." And you can decide whether that means you know we don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, it's going to be quickly. Uh, the second view is that there are those who say that John's telling his readers in the first verse that the things recorded in this prophecy are going to happen in their lifetime. He is telling them that the time Daniel foretold is at hand, and they should read this letter understanding that they themselves, even way back in the first century, are called to overcome and endure because these things are, are happening soon. They're happening in a very short time. And there's a third view. That says, uh, you know, some take this to mean that um, that the uh, the beginnings the beginnings of all these things are taking place in the time of the first century. Uh, you know, in fact, the last days doesn't just mean you know the last few years of human history, but the last days refers to all the time, however long it is between Jesus's resurrection and his second coming. So while many of the events you know have been inaugurated uh, and indeed began at the resurrection, the fulfillment of his kingdom, the fulfillment 
fulfillment of these things is going to be continued to be revealed until you know the the end finally comes. So, are you confused yet? <laughs> we uh, we hadn't even got out of verse one yet. Uh, and so here's what here's what we're saying. The there's an interpretive challenge right here in verse one. Uh, there's a link between Daniel and Revelation when he says the things which must happen, the things which must happen. The only other place that phrase is used is in Daniel's prophecy. And John, it seems like he's quoting that phrase, what must happen, the things that is necessary to happen. But he replaces the words in the latter days, in the last days, with the word soon. So we have to decide, and I'm not going to make the decision for you. We're just going to keep walking through the text. We have to decide what the word soon means. And so we're going to hold off on it for right now, but understand that there's three different there's three different ways you can interpret that, three different ways that people have in the past, and it goes along with the interpretations I told you about last week, the futurist, the historicist, the preterist. The, it goes along with those things. So you, you can decide what soon means to you. In the second part of verse one, he says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. That's uh, verse second part of verse one and verse two. So John starts off with an overt connection uh, to Daniel's latter day prophecy. But he also wants us to make sure that we understand that the subject of this book is going to be uh, the subject of the revelation that God gives him is the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He says he bore, verse 2, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the point of revelation. If you start digging into all this symbolism and miss the point that it is revealing Jesus Christ and his gospel, you have totally missed what Revelation is trying to teach you. Um, This is about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The testimony of Jesus Christ himself is the word of God. And verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. There's another temporal uh, phrase, another phrase denoting time. But first he says, the one who reads and the one who hears this prophecy is blessed. Now, to many modern readers, you know, they just, we don't reap the blessing of the book of Revelation because of the fanciful interpretations and looking for things that John is not really intending to focus on. Uh, rather than rather than trying to decipher the events concerning the end of the world, we should be trying to see Jesus and the reality of his kingdom in the book. The book is intended to be a blessing to God's people at all times in every age. Uh, we're talking about you know the people that received it in the first century and we're talking about the people that have uh, that are going to experience things at the end times. But this book is intended for all of God's people, all of God's church, all of Christ's church in every single age. We have to ask ourselves right from the beginning um, if the vast majority of the book is only dedicated to explaining how the, the world's going to end, uh, would that really be a blessing or instruction? for people in those seven churches in the first century? I mean, 
you know, hey guys, I know you're you're going to be persecuted and killed for the faith, but you know, don't worry about it. We're all going to win in two thousand years. You know, two thousand years from now, it's going to be you know, Christ is going to bring His kingdom and make a new creation. Um, I don't know if that would be very much a blessing to them to say, you know, we're going to go through all this hard times, but uh, you know, way long after we're dead, it's all going to be fine. What about the Christians in the tenth century, uh, the eleventh century, the twelfth century? You know, the, the ones that went through all kind of things you know this book was meant to be a blessing for them it was meant to be a blessing for the ones who first heard it it's meant to be a blessing for the ones in the 10th 11th century it's meant to be a blessing for you and i today and if the world's still here in a thousand years and christ hasn't returned uh it's going to be a blessing for those christians in that day um strictly speaking you know we're we're really just wasting time if we're trying to figure out the uh, the 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 road signs of the end of the world. Um, we're just we're just spinning our wheels. Uh, so as we go through this book, we're going to see that you know, like every other book of scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament, Revelation was inspired scripture, and it is authoritative for faith and practice in the church through every age. First Timothy tells us that uh, all scripture is profitable, so that the man of God will be equipped for every good work and that that applies to the men of God, I say the men, the people of God in in first century, it applies to the people of God today. John is not going to give us, listen to me, he's not going to give us a chronological play-by-play of how the world ends. Instead, he is going to give the church a prophecy rooted in the pictures of the Old Testament that calls the church in every age to respond in faith and obedience. It is a testimony of Jesus Christ. And look at what the ver- the end of that verse says, the end of verse 3. We met, a lot of people miss that. You know, we 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 in a hurry to try to get to the dragons and the seven-headed monsters. Uh, but it says blessed is the one who reads, who hears and what else? The one who keeps what is written in it. Revelation isn't just a book giving you information about this thing or that thing. I mean, how do you keep something? That's just giving you information about the end times. The church is called to hear this prophecy. The church is called to obey this prophecy. Uh, Look what else it says. Why? Why should these people hear and obey? Because the time is near. The time is at hand. So here, you know, we're back to the same old thing that we talked about when we talked about soon. Uh, what we, I'm not going to get into it still. We still got, I still got a ways to go before we start breaking ground on, uh, on the actual, uh, uh, the actual references to some of the things in the book. But at least here, let's agree on one thing. Um, we have to, we have to at least say, we must at least say that the realities he's revealing to, uh, the church in Revelation with the Old Testament symbols are relevant to the churches to whom John first wrote the book. We have to at least say that, that it was relevant to them. Uh, we haven't getting it, given anything away yet, so if you're a futurist or you're a preterist or you're whatever, you know, just, just hold on to your thing, whatever it is. I'm not asking you to accept one viewpoint over another, but at the very least, right now, we have to agree that John is presenting the fact um, that the last age is beginning for those early Christians 
uh, as well. And, and of course, we're still in the last days. I'm saying, you know, people say it's the last days today. I, hey, I agree with you. It is the last days. The kingdom that Daniel saw that conquers all the others, you know, that it has already begun and it's moving forward. We are definitely in the last days. In fact, the last days represents the time of God's final work with mankind. Jesus has come and he has been resurrected. The last days are is all the time between the resurrection and the second coming. And the New Testament bears that out. If you read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2 says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. First Peter 1.20 says, He was for, talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. First uh, John 2.18, John says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now, John's writing in the first century, he says, so now many Antichrists have come. So this isn't too hard to accept. Jesus and, and John the Baptist, they, they preached that the kingdom of God was at hand to the ones that were listening to them, to their hearers. Jesus said in the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, uh, he said uh, that, you know, uh, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, at the very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, 7, John will remind his readers that the time is near. So I haven't given anything away yet. You can still hold on to your interpretive grid if that's what you want to do. But, but what, what you have to at least agree with me about is that the kingdom, the, what John is prophesying, was relevant to those men and women that were in those seven churches in the first century. It was relevant to people 500 years ago. And it's relevant for us today. And if the world keeps spinning for a thousand years, it's going to be relevant to them. There's so many people that have taken verses, especially during during, you know, uh, there were people in in in, uh, in when when we went to war with Gaddafi that were showing from verses in Revelation how Gaddafi is the end time guy. And, and then it was Saddam Hussein is the end time guy. And you go back to World War Two and Hitler was the end time guy and Mussolini was the end time guy. And, you know, every few years, you know, it's a. Uh, uh, a new end time guy shows up, you know, so we have to stop. We have to stop with this. It's going to be a new end time guy, you know, 20 years from now. We have to take the Bible for what it says. And so what we see here is that the kingdom of God has already begun. But we also see this is something scholars call the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. But Jesus also told us to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done and so we have an, a sense in which we are already seeing the kingdom of god when you come to faith in christ born again by the spirit of god he rules in your heart he ascended to heaven he said all power and authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth and i don't read anywhere in scripture where he gave it back to anybody he has all power and authority he's sitting at the right hand of the father he's reigning right now the kingdom of god has already begun it began at the resurrection and the ascension of jesus christ but there is also there is also a sense in 
which the kingdom is not fully consummated yet. We still live in flesh. We still have sin in, in the world. We still live in the fallen nature of the world. And so there's an already and there's a not yet aspect that, that are, are pulling against each other. So before we start taking and looking at all these things and saying, well, we're going to find out what happens at the end of the world. You need to stop and you need to understand that John is, this is a real letter. It was really sent to real people, real churches that existed in the first century. And I have a hard time believing that John penned this letter in, by the inspiration of God and, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, mailed the letter to these seven churches that went along this mail route in Asia Minor and it wasn't really applicable to them in any way, shape, or form, except for chapter two and chapter three. So we have to we have to take a look at we have to take a look at the way that we I- interpret these things. We have to take a look at the way that the Bible uh, interprets itself, and we have to back up and say, you know what? I'm not going to be I'm not going to be dogmatic about what this might mean, and you know what my mama told me, and what my grandmama told me, and all the movies I've seen about the end times. Uh, I, I need to I need to stop, and I need to let Scripture speak to me rather than me importing my ideas into Scripture. And it, we all do that. We all come to the text with presuppositions. Uh, one, uh, one, one guy that I, I have a lot of his books and I, I read a lot of his stuff, he says, you know, one of the things he, he makes sure to say all the time is that if you don't think you have any presuppositions, you're the one who's most enslaved by your presuppositions. And so uh, we all have that. We have to just learn to lay them aside. We have to learn to let Scripture speak to us. So back to Revelation chapter 1, um, chap, uh, verse 4 is going to be the greeting. John, and he says, uh, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And verse 5 continues, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, John begins by addressing his audience. This is a letter. It is a prophecy. Remember what I told you last week? It's a prophecy. It's apocalyptic literature, but it's also a letter. It's a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor. The first question usually comes to mind is, why did John write to these specific seven churches? There there, there are lots of other churches in the area around Asia Minor, churches like you know Colossae and Heropolis, and uh, they were right there. I mean, they were right there next to them. Why, why are... Why are they left out? You know, and I, I, of course, I don't have the perfect answer for that question, but I can tell you that we're going to see throughout the book as we look at the uh, the Old Testament symbolism that uh, numbers in the book of Revelation are going to have meaning as well. Now, the use of numbers as symbols in, in themselves has its roots in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. Um, but we need to make sure we don't get carried away and take these symbolic number meanings way too far like so many people have. We're not talking about numerology or finding hidden meanings by calculating various kind of number calculations or anything like that. But we do see patterns of the way that certain numbers are used in the Old Testament. And that speaks directly to the way John is using them here for uh, for example, you, uh, I mean, you can't read through the book of Revelation and not see the significance of the number seven. You know, I mean, even if you really don't understand what it's trying to communicate, you can see that John's vision 
is using it as a pattern. You, know, you got seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God before the altar. Um, it's just it's using it for something. It's showing us something in the in the Old Testament. Seven usually signifies completeness or fullness, and you've probably heard that before. You've probably heard people say that's a, that's a well known concept. So it's not it's not some secret knowledge that I'm giving you that nobody's ever heard of before. That's uh, that's pretty well known, but what I want to show you is where it comes from. Uh, it comes from the fact that uh, it comes from a lot of things. We see it over and over in the Old Testament. Uh, creation was completed in seven days, you know, including including God's day of rest. Uh, in Leviticus four sixteen and seventeen, the priests were to sprinkle the blood seven times on the altar in order to complete the sacrifice. You know, Leviticus uh, twenty six eighteen uh, and following that rest of that chapter, uh, God says He'll punish Israel seven times. Meaning that it'll be a complete punishment, not meaning that, you know, hey, I'm going to punish you once and I'm going to punish you again and then I'm going to punish you again. Um, in the seventh year, the Hebrew slave was to be freed. That's Exodus 21, uh, verse 2, uh, because he's, you know, completed his time of captivity and service. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. Leviticus 25, 4 says that uh, seven times. Seven reiterates the sense of uh, of completeness, you know, because you've got the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you ever uh, heard, uh, thought about that before, but at the completion of 50 years was the year of Jubilee. And that's seven times seven is 49. And then the year of Jubilee is the 50th year and that all the land is freed and all the land returns to its original owners. You can read that in Leviticus 2510. It's like a, a week of years is what it's called. And we're going to see that phrase again as we turn back and forth from Revelation to Daniel. A week of years uh, represent the time before the Jubilee. And so, the you know, you can even see it in the New Testament. The Lord, uh, when, when the Lord told Peter uh, that, should I forgive him seven times? And, and Jesus said, no, you don't forgive him seven times. You forgive him seven times, 70 times. You know, he wasn't saying, you know, he wasn't saying you can forgive him 490 times and then once that's done you don't have to forgive him anymore no he was saying you forgive him completely and fully you give forgive him totally as many times as he comes and repents before you so you see this you see this uh this pattern all through the old testament i mean there's many more examples i could give you but seven seems like it's representing uh, a, a completeness and we're going to see more of that as we talk about the seven lampstands and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and all those kind of things so the point the point that he's making uh as he talks, he's going to show us that the seven churches are seven lampstands in a picture at the end of chapter one. The point that he's making is he's speaking to the whole church, all the church. He's speaking to the seven churches represent the completed body of Christ. The seven churches, you know, although they are actually seven churches, represent the church as a whole. Uh, I also take the letters themselves as evidence uh, to corroborate this, because if you look at every single letter in the church in chapters two and chapter three, we're going to see that later. Every single letter, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to who? The churches, to all the churches. So we're going to talk about the number seven a lot through through the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about more. We'll talk more about that later. But John gives 
Right here in verse 4, John gives the church's greeting. You know, just like any other epistle in the New Testament, he says, Grace and peace to you from God. Uh, but instead of just saying God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, like many other of the epistles do in the New Testament, he says, Grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, this is the Father that he's talking about. And the reason why I say that is because he mentions Jesus in the next verse. He says, uh, let me read verse 4 and 5. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, this threefold description of the Father, him who is, who was, and who is to come, uh, it's it's referencing passages in Isaiah that you've probably heard many times uh, where God is saying that he alone is eternal. He's the first and the last. Isaiah 41, 4 says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am. Uh, Isaiah 43, 10, God calls himself the I am, the existing one. Uh, Isaiah 44, 6 says, I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there's no God. Isaiah 48, 12 says, I am he, or actually it says, I am. I'm the first and I am the last. Now, we're, we're also going to see that uh, Jesus uses this language later when he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But these passages that we just read in Isaiah, where God calls himself the I Am, uh, they all point back to Exodus chapter 3, where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, and he calls himself Yahweh. He calls himself in the Greek Old Testament, it's Ego I Me, which is what Jesus calls himself in, in John's Gospel, the I Am. And so, he calls himself Yahweh. The you know that's where in the burning bush he says you know Moses says who should I tell him sent me? He says you tell him I am who I am or I am that I am. There's a lot of debate about how exactly you should translate the word Yahweh. Um, is it I am that I am or I am who I am? Uh, some translate it I am who I will be, uh, and so. If you remember that the the New Testament authors will overwhelmingly uh, quote uh, the the Greek Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, the Greek version of Exodus, he calls himself he calls himself Ego I Me Haon. I am the one who is. I am the one being. I I am I am. Uh, he's the eternal God. Is the point of what he's trying to say? The one who has always been and will always be. And that's what John is speaking of. The one who is. The one who was and the one who is to come. He's referencing the Father, and he's, he's saying this is the God, this is Yahweh of the, of the Old Testament. This is the one who spoke to Moses, the one Isaiah prophesied about. Uh, but John's greeting is not just from the Father, it's also uh, from, from the, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit here in verse 4 is described as the seven spirits before his throne. You see it? Uh, seven spirits before his throne. Uh, let me find it. There it is. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne now here we go again with the sevens uh the fullness it's the whole the this is the fullness of the holy spirit the picture of seven spirits uh which may sound a little weird to us the picture comes from zechariah chapter four where the seven lamps represent the one holy spirit in zechariah chapter four um uh Zechariah is given a vision. There were there were two men that were tasked with rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem in Zechariah. Uh, one was named Zerubbabel. One was named Joshua. And what he was doing here is he's uh, giving them a, a picture of the power that they're going to be able to tap into God's power to rebuild this 
temple to rebuild the 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 city of Jerusalem after they have come back to, from the exile. In Zechariah chapter four, uh, it says verse one in chapter four says, "And the angel who talked with me, this is Zechariah speaking, uh, came uh, again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold. This is a vision that Zechariah is being given. A lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps and that are on top of it. Verse 3 in Zechariah 4 says, And there are two olive trees. Those symbolize Zerubbabel and Joshua. I mean, I, that's later on told for us in Zechariah chapter 4. One on the right bowl, one on the left. And it says, And I said to the angel who talked to me, this is Zechariah speaking, Zechariah said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Those seven lamps, uh, those seven lamps uh, denoted, they represented the power of the Holy Spirit that Zerubbabel was going to need to uh, to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And so John is tapping into that imagery here. He's saying the seven spirits who are before the throne. And he's also probably using the sevenfold. Some commentators and some scholars will say that he's using uh, Isaiah 11 2 which uh, which shows the spirit of God uh, talking about the Holy Spirit but he is described seven different ways it's the one uh, this spirit in Isaiah 11 is equipping the Messiah to establish his kingdom uh, in verse uh, Isaiah 11 verse 2 says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him that's one spirit of the Lord spirit of wisdom spirit of understanding spirit of counsel spirit of might spirit of knowledge and the spirit of fear of the Lord and he just describes the Holy Spirit uh, seven different ways and so you got the seven spirits before the throne speaking of the Holy Spirit you got the Father the one who is the one who was the one who will be and then you have Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you are starting to see the depth of the Old Testament symbolism that John's using. He often pulls layers upon layers of symbols on top of each other. And unless you can hear the Old Testament prophets in the background of your thinking, uh, you may miss some of the things that John's saying. Now, uh, let me just say this before we continue and we talk about Christ in verse 5. Um, all these things that I have told you so far are not, these are not mysteries. These are not, uh, these are not something nobody has ever thought of. These are, when you just read it for yourself without knowing all these Old Testament backgrounds, you probably deduced that as well. You probably knew that he who is and he who was and he who will, it will be is the Father. You probably knew that the seven spirits for the throne is the Holy Spirit. You probably knew, you know, you probably knew those things. You've probably been preached that before. It's very common. A lot of people understand that understanding. You're saying, why are you going and all this detail? Why are you reading all this stuff from the Old Testament? Because I told you, I'm going to give you the reason why I say this means that at every point that I am able. Now, 
at this in this first chapter, you're thinking this is way too much for me. I didn't sign up for all this, but I promise you in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 14th, 20th chapter, you're going to be glad because those are some deep symbols. Those are some deep uh, references to Old Testament pictures. And, you know, I can just go through I can go through chapter one if you want to and just say this is the father. This is the spirit. This is whatever. And just tell you what it means. Or I can break down all these Old Testament passages for you and show you why it means what I say it means. And so that's what I've decided to do. And I'm hoping it's helpful to you. I hope I'm not boring you to death. But verse five, he told us greetings, grace and peace from the father, the one who is one who was will be from the Holy Spirit, seven spirits for the throne of God and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That pre- that's pretty straightforward. You probably don't need much inter- much brain power to interpret who he's talking about and what those things mean. Uh, the grace and peace John greets us with, uh, it, it comes from Jesus Christ. You know, So we have right here in, in chapter 1, uh, in verses 4 and 5, a description of the triune God. Uh, grace and peace to you from the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And John, in this section, he describes Christ in terms of his role in redemptive history. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who was first born from the dead. He is the rulers of the kings of the earth. And these these references uh, most likely come from Psalm 89 where uh, the father's talking about his Messiah, where he says uh, 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 Psalm 89, 27 says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Uh, in that same Psalm, verse 36 and 37, it says, talking about the Messiah, his offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies and so he says his throne either his rule is a faithful witness and so john's using these imageries from psalm 89 Jesus is witnessed faithfully, truthfully to the gospel of the Father and the will of God in the kingdom. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he has preeminence and position over everything in creation because of his resurrection from the dead. He has been forever exalted to the throne of the Father, uh, both God and man. His resurrection, uh, it began the new creation in the kingdom of God that is not complete yet. It's not consummated, but it will be consummated when he returns in power and glory. Uh, and so in verse 6, he says, this Jesus, this faithful faithful witness, this one who was um, risen from the dead, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The description of Christ extends by... Um, by describing glory, it, it, it ascribes glory and dominion to him. Uh, he loves his people and has loosed or freed us from our sin. That's what it says. He's freed us uh, from uh, from our sin. And then he says, you, you probably recognize this, uh, you know, speaking of the atonement that he accomplished by dying on the cross, bearing the wrath and justice of God. And Jesus has made those of us who trust him to be a kingdom of priests, to be kings and priests. We're going to see that later on. Later on in one of the letters, he's going to say, to him who overcomes, I'll make him a king and a priest to my God. And so that'll be important. So remember that. But he has made us 
a kingdom of priests. He's made us kings and priests. He's made us kings by giving us his righteousness and authority. You know, he said he'll sit on, you'll sit on the throne uh, and reign with me. And he's made us priests by tearing that veil so that we can come boldly into the Father's presence. We're kings by his rule and we're priests in that we have access to God himself. The the church as a kingdom of priests uh, is seen in the New Testament, but it comes from God's stated purpose for Israel in Exodus 19.6. In Exodus 19.6 it says, and you shall be to me a king. He's talking to Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And they were a kingdom of priests who were charged with spreading the knowledge of God to the nations. Uh, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And so, it, it, but it's also written in First Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 5 and following. You can see where it says, you know, he calls the believers a royal priesthood. That's us. We're a royal priesthood. Kings and priests. The, the fulfillment of Exodus, that Exodus verse we read, it points to the fact that we will see throughout Revelation and the New Testament. The church of Jesus is the true fulfillment of God's perfect Israel. This is crystal clear from Ephesians chapter 2. If you just follow the pronouns, he has made the two people one in Christ Jesus. And verse 7 in Revelation, getting back to Revelation, I don't want to go off on that just yet. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Now, you probably read that verse and heard it many times before. Um, But if a person rooted in the Old Testament picked up the the first chapter of Revelation for the first time and read verse 7, this wouldn't be the first time that he'd heard those words. This verse is a quote from two Old Testament passages. One is Daniel seven thirteen, and it refers to the Son of Man receiving his throne and and his kingdom from the ancient of days after God's judgment. Uh, let me read that for you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, uh, Daniel's having a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then later it says that he received kingdom and dominion and all that. The, the coming with the clouds, you know, behold, I'm coming with clouds, it, it's often thought to refer to the second coming. But the quotation from Daniel it doesn't speak of the Son of Man coming from heaven to earth. Instead, it shows, in Daniel, it shows the coming of the Son of Man up to the Ancient of Days to receive dominion and authority. So, this would be better pictured in Christ's ascension, you know, where he... Where he you know, said that all power and authority is given to me into heaven and earth, and then he ascended into heaven. But the, besides all that, the real point John is making here is not to tell us, you know, how the Lord's going to come back or if, you know, how, how the cloud's going to look when he returns. The point that he's making here is that Jesus is indeed the Old Testament Son of Man that is foretold in Daniel. And he is also the Messiah that's promised uh, in in. Zechariah 12, and that's the other passage that's quoted, where it says, you know, the clouds 
Let me go back. He says, I'm coming with the clouds. And then he says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And Zechariah 12, verse 10 speaks of the people looking upon the one whom they've pierced, the Messiah. Zechariah 12, um, it, it, it pertains to the time when God will judge the nations and redeem his people. If you went with me through Zechariah, that, that whole podcast is on the, on the website. But notice the way that that John changes Zechariah's words. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Who is he going to pour it out on so that when they look on him, they'll mourn? It's the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But John says, instead of them, the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, seeing him, John says, every eye will see him. And then he says, the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem won't be the ones that just mourn. It'll be all the tribes of the earth will mourn, not just the tribes of Israel. And so this picture adds to the fact that John is showing us in the Revelation that it's applied universally. It's it's expanded beyond just Israel, and now it, it encompasses the whole earth. The prophecies of the kingdom, redemption, victory, they're fulfilled in Christ. The last days that the prophets spoke of, they've begun, and they'll conclude when Christ returns in power and glory. And finally, verse 8, uh, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this that's, that's the end of the introduction for, for Revelation. And it closes with this statement. God is sovereign over all events in history. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He accomplishes his purposes in all of history. And... You know, what it's going to show us is that believers don't have any need for fear in the coming times, whenever they may be. God is right now, uh, you know, he's right now. He was before time began. He was, he's going to come in power and judgment. Uh, John's, he's referencing those Isaiah passages that we read earlier again, here where he says God's the first and the last, you know, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, in the context of every one of those Isaiah passages that we read, is that God is in complete control, that God sits on his throne and that nothing goes on that is not intimately involved in God's purposes, God's plan. So that's where we're going to end. I hope I hadn't scared you off and I hope I, I hope you have a pen and a notebook handy. The point he makes is that there will be trial, tribulation, judgment, redemption, but regardless of what goes on, God is on the throne. He is com- in complete control and those who trust in Christ are already conquerors through him. And the point that he makes as he introduces this is he gives us so many old testament allusions so many old testament references that you if if you're steeped and rooted in the old testament you can't miss the fact that john is proclaiming with a loud voice to all who read this prophecy that those prophets that prophesied the kingdom of god the messiah the the consummation of god's kingdom has come in the person the work of jesus christ and it has already started in in these last days.